Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by Texas Representative Julie Johnson, a Democratic member of the Texas House of Representatives, representing the 115th District in Northwest Dallas County. She was first elected to the House in 2018 and is currently serving in her second term. She's joining us today in our DC studio as she is in town with more than 50 of her fellow Democrats as they continue for the second week to deny the Texas legislature the quorum they need to pass anti-voting legislation and also to encourage Democrats on Capitol Hill to do something at the federal level. So Representative, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, it's great to be here. So we were supposed to do this last week And as I was telling you right before we started recording that you and I were doing a little streaming show and there was somebody who was wheeling a suitcase behind you. And you said it wasn't your suitcase, but it was indicative of what I thought was about to happen. So I'm glad we could reschedule for this week. You're now starting your second week here. Yes, we came to D.C. last Monday and here we are. And so how are things? You know, there's a lot of words to describe how things are going. They're exciting. They're frustrating. They're encouraging. They're disappointing. There are lots of things right. of what's happening right now. Yeah, it runs the gamut of emotions, I imagine. Absolutely. You know, it's exciting to be here with my colleagues. We're actually half amazed we actually pulled it off that we, you know, got all of us together. <laughs> That's no small feat. We had right. less than 24 hours notice and we all seemed to manage to do it. But, you know, it's empowering to be here advocating on behalf of voting rights for so many people. And to be part of this long arc of journey that so many have paved the way before us. And it's frustrating that we found ourselves in this space, that the GOP in Texas is hell-bent on making sure that fewer people vote. Right. I think you and I spoke about this last week. You know, I came up in Texas politics. I went to high school and college down there. I worked for then Governor Bush. And when he was first elected, he worked with a guy named Bob Bullock, who was a legendary figure in Texas politics, lieutenant governor, Democrat. And though they came from very different places, and at the time we thought very different perspectives, they got along famously. They were personally close. And I think at the time people would consider, you know, admittedly it's almost 25 years ago, that they got a lot done for the state of Texas across a broad front. You know, then Governor Bush was solidly committed to public education, solidly committed to immigration reform. Now we see the Republicans, especially Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, for whom they've sort of taken on this strident appeal that really, in my mind anyway, and I'll put you in a a little bit of a pinch here, that seems designed mostly to ensure that they get through their primaries next March safely and leave, you know, 30 some million Texans sort of left wondering who's going to look after them when things really go south. Right. You know, I think... What we're really experiencing is the effect of Trumpism 
and what it's doing to the Republican Party, especially in some of these super red states. And some of my Republican colleagues, you know, I like very much on a personal level, but I am just dismayed at the just entrenchment that they're in, pandering to a very small percentage of the voting electorate in Texas, and quite frankly, a small percentage of the Republican Party base. They're just loud and active. And if there's one message that I want Texans to know from this is please vote and get involved in primaries. If you are disgusted with the state of politics in our country at a national level, at a state level, in terms of the absolute partisan gridlock, then go vote in a primary and get politicians back to legislating towards the center and legislating because they have to win a general election, not because they're concerned about a primary. Well, and Texas is not a party registration state, so you can pull any primary ballot you want, I assume, right? Right. Any person in Texas can vote in any primary. They can only vote in one of them, right, though. Of you can't go vote in both. But it is a measure of who you are. And we know what primary you voted in. And so that is a matter of public record. So if you're you know, a staunch Democrat, you probably don't want to go vote in Republican right. primaries because you still want to have a say in affecting who the candidates are on the ballot of your party. So yes, but we don't have a registered system per se. So when you talk about red states, like you said, very red states, we think about Louisiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, Alabama. Texas is historically a conservative state, but it is not a dead red state by any stretch, right? I mean, it's got tens of millions of people, probably speaks every language. And so, you know, it gets this reputation, but we saw that in 2018, right, Beto O'Rourke almost beats Ted Cruz, brings a lot of Democrats, both in the state house, I think the state Senate and the U.S. Congress along with them. So the state is changing. And there's also a heck of a lot of influx from places like California and elsewhere that's also just changing the makeup of who actually lives in Texas. So it's not as red a state. And do you think that Republican leaders know that and that's part of the reason why they're doing what they're doing as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, we have, I think, what, it was 4 million new people in Texas in the last several years alone. And to your point of diversity, I have the most diverse district in the entire state. I have 78 different nationalities. 78. This is Northwest Dallas this County. Is, right, Dallas right. County. And I had my campaign materials translate into 15 different languages to reach my constituents. So absolutely, I would characterize Texas as not necessarily a conservative state, but as a non-voting state. We only had 54% of registered voters turn out to vote, barely over half. And, and that'll be less next year, probably, well, if things hold. Well, and if you look at what happened in the 2020 election, the tightest margin of the presidential contest in a generation. It was just at five points. And then with the state house, there was a lot of hullabaloo about turning over and flipping the Texas house and some disappointment that that didn't happen. But if you really look at the votes out of, I think, what, it was 11 million votes cast, we missed flipping the state house by 11,500 votes total across a series of nine different races. And so what they're trying to do, they're scared because this new electorate is younger. It's more diverse. It's coming in from more Democratic-based states. And so the Republicans are getting very, very nervous. And so what they're trying to do is not take away everyone's right to vote, but if they can make it hard for enough people just to save that margin to where those 11,500 votes don't come in, then they can remain in power. And they're very, very nervous about that. And so 
I think that's really driving a large part of what's happening. Also, in conjunction with the Trumpian belief of Trump's great big lie that he actually won the election and all of that, too. If there's one thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately is that all of this is marginal. It all matters on the margins, right? You talk about 11,500 votes in Texas in the state house, 45, 46,000 votes for Joe Biden in several states across the country. And Donald Trump's still president. And you and I probably aren't sitting here. You're probably in Austin, hopefully, but I'm probably in like the woods of Canada or something. But what does it say that Abbott has basically said now, I'm going to keep calling special sessions. And if they want to stay outside the state for as long as they have to, that's fine. But I'm going to keep doing this and I'm going to keep doing this and I'm going to keep doing this. Do you believe he would do that? Yes. I mean, I take him at his word that he would do that. I think it's foolish of him. You know, every special session he calls costs the taxpayers of Texas about a million dollars. And, you know, I can come up with a lot of things to use that million dollars on. Medicaid expansion, fixing our electric grid. Let's start with that. Yeah, I want to come back to that. There's a lot of issues that are important in our state. But at the end of the day, part of the problem is we have reached a place of the nuclear option across the board because bipartisan cooperation has completely broken down. So if you look at what happened in the history of this bill, for example, we had... And uh, this is SB1 we're talking about. Right. Yes, the Texas election bill. So it comes on the House floor. Democrats offer a lot of amendments. We negotiate a deal with our Republican colleagues if this is the bill, we'll have it come for a vote and it passed the House, but we're going to hold to this version. The House will not yield. They gave us their word. Okay, we look you in the eye. We're going to give you the word. It goes to the Senate. The Senate takes it clear apart. They put in 20 pages of extra crap. They take out all of the Democratic amendments. They give it to us eight hours before the deadline and say vote on it. And they completely broke their word to us. All trust was lost. And so then the special session comes and they go, we're going to be different. We're going to offer a gentler bill, which they did. They took out some of the most egregious parts of the bill that we were just very upset about, but they still left a lot of the prior agreed to terms on the table. They have a 24-hour hearing, 400 and something people come and testify. Literally in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, all night long. Democrats offered nine amendments. Every single one of them was rejected and said, hey, just work with us on the floor. Now, why would we trust that that's going to happen at this point? If they're willing to work with us, they should have accepted them in the committee. And we probably wouldn't even be here right now. But the fact is, that's part of the problem, is that when you completely leave the minority party out of the process and you completely remove their ability to provide input and cooperation on the bill, the only thing they have to have us for is to rubber stamp what they do. And we just decided we're not going to be that rubber stamp. We're not going to do it. And so here we are. So what's the dynamic then between the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, who is obviously very, very conservative, and the speaker, Dade Phelan? What's the dynamic between them? Because, I mean, I know that the lieutenant governor is a statewide elected position every four years. He's up next year. The speaker is chosen, obviously, by the House of Representatives. But, you know, he can decide, like, hey, Lieutenant Governor, like, I'm not going to do this. We got stuff we got to do. We didn't get it done in the session. Like, I'm not going to keep my house in session anymore. Like, I'm just, you know, I'll tell the governor, like, sorry. Is there any dynamic there between the houses that you think could eventually sort of break this fever? Well, I agree with you. You know, the Speaker Phelan needs to have a strong backbone and stand up for the house. Dan Patrick is a bully. He is, you know, kind of pistol whipping the speaker and the media 
berating him, putting him down. And so, you know, as a House member, what I want from my speaker is for him to stand up for the House and say, this is what we're going to do. You take it or leave it, Senate. And if you don't like it, we don't have to have any of it. But we're not going to go down your little skippy road of oppression, bigotry, hatred on across the multiple issues in the state of Texas. We're just not going to do it. And so far, you know, it's been disappointing because the speaker hasn't been as strong as we would like him to be. He has in a couple of arenas, but for the most part, we as House members, as House Democrats, need him to take a stronger stand to protect the House. When you heard Governor Greg Abbott say, as soon as they come back to the state, we're going to arrest them and we're going to cabin them inside of the Capitol. First, I never heard cabin as a verb. Are they able to do that to y'all? The governor has no authority, legal ability whatsoever to arrest any member of the Texas House. So all of his pandering about that is false. Yet again, his lack of propensity to be truthful to the people of Texas. He has no ability to do that. The only person that can do that is the speaker. And the speaker has not issued arrest warrants for House members at this time. He has the authority, but he has not done that. I mean, from our perspective, right, as we see ourselves as a pro-democracy organization, the idea that a sitting state governor would call for the arrest of sitting members of that state's legislature is pretty beyond the pale. Well, not only that, but, you know, he also vetoed the entire funding of the legislative branch. I mean, his blatant disregard for the separation of powers really should jaw drop any person who values the Constitution and the fundamental principles for how our government was set up. I mean, it is horrifying to me as a lawyer. I was a history major and government major at the University of Texas. Hook them horns. Hook them horns, baby. And, you know, and so it's just shocking to who we are as a country. And he has just gone off the fifth rail in terms of his willingness to sabotage separation of powers, his lack of respect for the legislative branch of government. Where does it go next? Does it mean he's going to defund the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court rules against him in the lawsuit that was filed about his unconstitutional veto of the legislative branch? So now he's just going to defund them too? You know, I think that the legislature should just defund the governor. We control the purse, so maybe he doesn't need any money. So, I remember when Abbott was chief justice of the state Supreme Court, again, a conservative, all things considered court, but sort of a pretty down the line, constitutionally conservative court, not so much culturally. Then he was attorney general, again, conservative attorney general, but nothing untoward. In fact, if anything, he was sort of vanilla and he got elected because no one else was going to get elected. But now he's totally departed. Do you have folks that go like, what the heck happened to the guy? I mean, I know that the party changed and he had chose to change with it. But I mean, for people who've known him, this has got to be aberrant behavior. Oh, absolutely. But look who's challenging him for governor. We have <laughs> speaking I mean, of aberrant behavior. <laughs> I mean, exactly. <laughs> we have crazy, crazier and craziest. Right. With Alan West being on the deep end of craziest. Right. Well, if Alan West is in 13 feet of the deep end, then Don Huffines is in 12 and a half feet of it. Right. You know, and so that's who's pounding him. So unfortunately, the real sad thing is, is that Governor Abbott isn't staying true to normal people's conservative Republican values. Right. Just the mainstream Republican, you know, local control, small government, constitutional respect. He's violating all of that. 
in order to chase down the road of who can be the craziest far-right Republican. And that is so disappointing to see as somebody who I consider myself, you know, just a moderate Democrat, willing to work across the aisle to get good policy for the citizens of Texas. And it's so frustrating. Someone last week when they were watching the show you and I did last Monday was asking, you know, how does Abbott look at himself in the mirror? And I said, there's a friend of ours, a woman named Ann Applebaum, and she's an incredible writer for The Atlantic, and she's written several books on authoritarianism. She lives in Poland. And she wrote an article in The Atlantic about what it means to be complicit and what it means to sort of give yourself over. And she said there are different ways. My guess is, is that the governor is looking in the mirror every day saying, but for me, it would be worse. I don't like to do the things I have to do. But if I don't do them, then they're going to get an Alan West or a Don Huffines or a Dan Patrick, and then they'll really be in trouble. So he sort of almost does this psychological gymnastics to say, I'm the best they could hope for. You know, I'm really protecting them from that. Now, I'm giving him a heck of a lot of benefit of the doubt. But I also think he wants to run for president in 2024. So I think there's any number of reasons. But the point is, is that he has become someone who is not a traditional conservative Republican in Texas, but someone who is a performative Trumpist in nature, as the state does have a lot of issues it needs to contend with. What we need in the Republican Party are people who are willing to stand up as the Lincoln Project has done, really, Mm -hmm. and articulate that this Trumpian viewpoint, this road to dictatorship, to fascism, however else you want to describe it, is just so dangerous to our democratic ideals, to our democracy. We have to speak out against it. And, you know, what really gets me is how many of my Republican colleagues in the House will come to me privately and say, I hate this. This is the worst election bill. I cannot even believe we're doing this. I'm hurting my own voters. I mean, why are you voting for it then? Well, because, you know, I kind of I kind of have to. I said, no, you don't. You don't no. have to. No, no, you don't. And I think that this notion that when we're giving Republicans, even at the state house level, this hall pass that they have to go vote along party lines, right. we need to have other groups really hold them accountable for what are you doing to defend what is right in our country, what is right in governance to stand up for that. So let me ask you this, because, I mean, if you're going to run for elective office, you're running to serve, theoretically, at least that used to be the reason why people chose, as we talked about previously, that running for state house or state senate in Texas is a part-time job. It's probably a full-time commitment, but it's technically a part-time job. The legislature meets every two years, you know, the odd year for about six months. And so everybody has other jobs they have to do. But what we see now is that they have decided, I'm more worried about my next election than I am about the state, even though they have a job, theoretically. They have something else to keep them occupied, but they're so worried about being primaried that this is, oh, I have to do this, but they don't. So there's no political will and there's no political courage left. And it's amazing and disappointing to me how quickly people just fold or they stay silent and say nothing and just hope the whole thing will go by them. You know, there's one member in the House, Lyle Larson, who has stood up. He says, no, he voted against this bill. You know, he's like, I'm going to vote for what's right. And, you know, what's amazing is he has more popularity in his district now than he ever has before. People want to have self-governance. They want to be able to vote to elect their leaders. We want peaceful transfers of power. We want to respect our three branches of government. 
And all of those sorts of things that we learn in civics, and then when we come to cities like Washington, D.C., is memorialized in these beautiful monuments around. And when we feel that sense of patriotism on July 4th, and when we feel that sense of patriotic loss when soldiers are killed away, fighting for these same values. And we need people to stand up for it and to tolerate things like defunding a branch of government, threatening arrest of a whole of the entire minority party of the House of Representatives is so contraindicative of what those ideals mean. It should shock everyone. So I want to move on from the election bill, but I want to talk a little bit more about what's going on in the state Senate that's still in this special session. So they've been working on a bill to basically ban transgender kids in high school sports. You know, it's funny, a dear friend of my family is an old conservative guy in California, and he met Ron DeSantis a few weeks back. And DeSantis came in and said, I just passed the transgender bill. And he was just so happy. And this guy, he's in his 80s. He goes, doesn't Florida have bigger issues? Like, I don't know about all this stuff, but like, I feel like Florida's got more important things to worry about. I was sort of like heartened by that because this is a guy who sort of went full Trump during the election. So they're passing this in Texas now. This is sort of the same version of the bathroom bill that Joe Strauss killed a couple of years back. And now there's this anti-critical race theory bill that's cutting out discussions of Martin Luther King, you know, his I Have a Dream speech and, you know, the letter from a Birmingham jail, which, if folks have not read it, is one of the greatest documents in the history of American liberty. This seems to me to be an opportunity they're taking to score political points with very, very conservative people while diminishing sort of American history writ large and getting away from local control that Republicans always seem to be such a fan of, right? Uh, One of my colleagues, Stuart Stevens, wrote a book called It Was All a Lie. And when I see stuff like that, I'm like, it was all a lie. It's not real. It's all performative. It's all BS. Because who doesn't think that Martin Luther King and other historic figures in this country should be taught as part of American history? Is this about race? It's not about CRT because that's BS. Like, I don't think any school really teaches that. This has become a, I don't even call it a dog whistle. It's become a bullhorn. Is this just a through line of race that generates a lot of heat and energy amongst the basest of base Republican voters? Well, there's no doubt that racism is alive and well, especially in Texas. But I think it's also just about control. If you really study the lead up of Hitler, one of the things they did was control propaganda. They went in and they took over all of the media outlets. They controlled the information that people received. This is an attempt to control the education of a new generation of voters, to control the history they learn so that they control their perspective from that history. And they're concerned um, about raising progressive students who learn and and their, their own thought process. And that should scare the hell out of everyone. The fact that we are now into this series of legislation with CRT that is designed to put the government stamp on what people learn. This should offend the notions of absolute everything that we stand for in our country. And it is so wrong. Well, I mean, and here's the other part, too, is probably far too few high school seniors graduating every spring who have any general or specific kind of civics education probably have far too little understanding of how elections work, why they work the way they work, 
And so we're also asking generation after generation of voters to participate in a system they don't understand. And my guess is, is that very few high school seniors, not only in Texas, but everywhere, have read a letter from a Birmingham jail or understand it. Right. So it's not like this stuff is being taught now, but now it's just like they're going out of their way. It's not just in Texas. It's happening everywhere. What do you see as you're sitting there in the state house? You know that your colleagues, as you talk about, are sort of, you know, they go back to their office and they go, ah, but like, how does it feel to sit there and know that? Well, it's so disheartening because where's their moral obligation to stand up and object? Where's their character? That's the thing that's so frustrating because we have found our voice to say this is absolutely wrong on every level. You know, you're right. Everyone should read the letter from the Birmingham jail. It is a testament of freedom. And to say that we're going to try to eliminate the I have a dream moment from our history is just absolutely ridiculous. I know it's like Stalin erasing the picture of Trotsky because (laughs) Trotsky had gone off the rails as far as Marxism, Leninism is concerned, right? So he was literally erased from the pictures. Right. And so that is the pathway that we're headed down. And if they're not doing it for political advantage, for, you know, partisanship, then it's done for controlling the minds of the next generation. And when we're going to start having those sorts of principles advocated by our elected leaders in this country, we need to wake up. At what point is the line where the average citizen is going to stand up and raise so much hell and go, this, no. You know, one thing I saw the other day in the news that just horrified me was in Florida, you know, they passed a bill that said every professor and student in a public university has to register their political affiliation. Are you kidding me? I know. I mean, I can't even get my head wrapped around that. Well, you can't get the kids to show up to class. So the idea that they have any idea of their political affiliation seems a little silly anyway. But your point is well taken, which is, well, let's know where you stand on this so we can make a judgment on, you know, how we feel about you. I mean, that's the other thing, too. And the irony of that happening in Florida is that we have these protests going on in Cuba for the first time in many years, where you also have you know, the Marco Rubios of the world and a lot of other Republicans saying we must stand with the Cubans, we must stand with the Cubans. Oh, but by the way, you're not allowed to peacefully protest in Florida if you oppose what DeSantis says, and you must tell us what your belief is when you get to college. The cognitive dissonance is breathtaking. And one of my friends texted me last night, he's like, they're believing their own lies now. They don't even know any different at this point. Well, yeah. And the fact that there's just such a lack of regard of honesty of the process, too, like even just going back to just the Texas election bill, when they say, oh, there was a typo or, oh, we don't know how this crazy crap that we can't defend publicly got into our bill. Oh, you know, there's no integrity. And that's so disappointing because, you know, on a personal level, if you go have a cocktail with some of these guys that I serve with, they're a lot of fun. But when you get into the public debate and the public space and the time to show your leadership, the time to show your character in this office that we have the honor and privilege to hold, they disappoint frequently. And at some point, the electorate needs to rise up and say, we're not going to take it. Well, listen, I mean, you're not going to get any disagreement from me. And in fact, we are in the process of starting, you know, just one more person as a sort of campaign of ours, which is we don't need everyone. But we do need enough of you. We need enough of you to take the representative's advice and pleading on my part, frankly. 
But that's one of those things that, you know, we've taken it for granted for so long. Just the idea that all of this stuff will just work out the way it is, that a lot of those muscles that we used to exercise or so many of our forebears fought for, uh, that were a little bit atrophied, right? We're just in a little bit unsure of ourselves. And I think that we have to get back to that surety of purpose, which I think certainly we try and do. Let me ask you about now that you're here in Washington, D.C., you should know that I've been here for the weekend and ran into some of your colleagues. So how's it going so far? How are your meetings going? How do you feel things are going here? And what do you think is going to happen on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C.? Well, you know, things have been going exceedingly well on two fronts. First, our presence here and our meetings here on the Hill. You know, I think giving voice to situations is so important in, in a variety of circumstances. But we've been able to meet with multiple senators and congressional leaders. And one of the things that's become universally true is they don't really know the details of the bill. You know, they just know it's bad or, oh, there's some bad bill in Texas. But when we have a chance to tell them that under this bill, the privacy of the voting booth is no more. A lot of the insurrectionists on January 6th are from Texas. Those fools could be recruited to be partisan poll watchers. And under this law, the bill proposed by Republicans, there's no safe space for the voter. They can be literally within two inches of you as you cast your ballot. And then if they think there's some untoward thing that you did, they have the right to review your ballot. I mean, under what scenario is that even remotely okay? And so when we're educating senators about the terms of the bill, they're horrified and then they're getting it. They're seeing why there's this urgency on the ground that they pass federal legislation. And so from that point of view, it's been very hopeful because I think there's been this 10,000 foot view of, oh, yeah, there's these movements in the states. We need to do all voting rights. Yeah, we've passed these bills, but oh, we may have a filibuster roadblock. Uh But now what's happened is after these meetings, they're like, oh, we've got to figure this out. We have to get something done. So before I get to the the U.S. senator specifically, remind me, so there's the poll watchers who can sort of run around willy nilly. But as I recall, the last time we talked, doesn't it also put pretty significant restrictions on the, the elections judges there? Right. Elections in Texas, if this bill passes, will be like baseball, three strikes and then you're out. So the election judge must observe the poll watcher with their own eyes. The first time they have to tell them, the second time they get a warning, and on the third time they get kicked out. So they really kind of get, you know, two free felonies and then they can get removed. But as you noted the last time we spoke, a lot of these election judges tend to be older. So let's say you have some goon in a Hawaiian shirt who's given people a hard time at their actual, you know, as they're filling out their ballots. And now you've got a 78 year old woman who's like, son, please, I need you to leave. I need you to leave. I need you to leave. And she's like, he's like, no, granny, try and move me. I mean, so there's no practical way to do this anyway. Right. The only thing they can do is at some point call the police and And hope that you don't have a sheriff's department that (laughs) agrees with the goon. Hope that they show up and (laughs) all of that sort of thing. It's outrageous. And that has nothing to do with election integrity or the security of our ballots. It has everything to do with voter intimidation. And so, you know, it's been really heartening on the progress on the Hill, but we have to educate. That's what it's become really clear to us is we really need to go through some of the details so that they really understand the implications. Another example is on mail-in ballots. So get your head wrapped around this. So, you know, we have all this data security going on out there, right? 
there's yet another data breach, another data breach. So now the Republicans, for people who want to vote in my mail, you have to put your name and address right. and your social security number out there in sure. the mail. Right. Who's going to do Which that? Which is how I marked my paper in English 301 in 1994 at UT because no one, no one cared about our name. But we're now 2021 where, you know, between data breaches and everything else. Yeah. Right. I mean, you might as well just be giving somebody your life. Right. Or so let's say you registered to vote and when you initially registered, you used your driver's license number. But then let's say 10 years later, you've always voted in person, but now maybe something's happened and you need to vote by mail. You're sick or whatever. In the application, it says, oh, I'll put my social security number down. Well, because the numbers don't match, your ballot is now automatically invalid. And this is the kicker. You have zero right to cure. Wasn't that what provisional ballots and all that was supposed to be for? Was the idea that you could fix it because there was that kind of discrepancy? I mean, this is not like newfangled stuff. This is stuff we've been doing for a long time. Right. But they're tightening it down and they're taking away that right to cure. All right. So this is going to affect every Texas voter. It's obviously going to affect a lot of voters in places like Harris County, your county, Dallas County, Bear County, where San Antonio is. You know, there's 254 counties in Texas. About 40 of them have people in them um, <laughs> of significant numbers. They're all beautiful in their own way. But there's going to be one drop box in Dallas, one drop box in Harris, one drop box in Bear, you know, one drop box in Travis, where Austin is. And, you know, there's also going to be one in Fort Bend. You know, and all the other basically giant empty counties out west and in the east of Texas. But then you also talked about the fact that this also is going to have a real effect on elderly voters and other people who vote by mail, as you were just talking about. It's going to make that friction just enough to say, ah, to hell with it. My vote doesn't matter anyway. They've made this too hard. I'm just going to sit at home. That's a real risk. In fact, you know, this could really backfire on Republicans in some way because I believe more Republicans vote by mail than, by, than Democrats do. Well, because it's more efficient to target voters when you know they can vote by mail because Reed got his ballot at his house. We know he mailed it back in. We can take him off our list, right? It's more efficient. It's more effective. I can spend that $2 I was going to use on him on someone else. And so Donald Trump last year single-handedly wrecked his own vote by mail program by saying it was rigged. And a lot of Republicans bought it. And shutting down the post office, right. you know, where you didn't feel like the post was safe to mail your ballot. And that's right. why this mail ballot drop off things became an issue, because they started shutting down post office sorting machines to really minimize your ability to mail in your ballot. And right. then, oh, but then we don't want you to have a reasonable place to drop it off either. So, you know, I just for the life of me, I need some Republican to explain to me why they are advantaged by just really restricting the vote for all kinds of people. It makes absolutely no sense. And unfortunately, we should have a government. Our government should be telling our citizens, you know, this is the bedrock. This is the cornerstone. This is the principle that upholds all of the values that we have dear. And we're going to defend it and expand the opportunity. So we need federal legislation to have consistency across the states so that, you know, every voter has an equal opportunity to cast their vote. So as you've been talking to, I assume, members of the House, but obviously the Senate, you know, what I've always found about U.S. senators, especially because they come for six years, is that they become not the U.S. senator from Texas or the U.S. senator from Nebraska, but a senator of the United States. Right. They sort of totally separate themselves from where they're from in some cases because they don't have to actually face voters for so long comparatively. 
So this discussion of having to educate them on what they're seeing, it's a little bit surprising and frankly disappointing because this stuff has been rampant since January 6th. This is not new news. We've already seen it pass in places like Georgia and Florida and Iowa. So the idea now that they're just sort of waking up and the scales are falling from their eyes, does that frustrate you at all? Oh, absolutely. The Georgia uh, legislation was atrocious. And, you know, Texas is just right one step behind them. And you're right, though. In a lot of respects, they are the national senator. And so many states don't feel like they have representation in the Senate. You know, as a Democrat in Texas, I certainly don't feel like I'm represented in the Senate by my senators. Well, no one in Texas is represented (laughs) by your senators. So, so, you know, there's that. And, you know, they refuse to meet with us, you know, which is also, if you think about it, shocking that an elected member would refuse to meet with other elected members, that their constituents who elected them also elected us. And they refuse to meet with us. You know, it's incredible. So what's next for y'all? Well, we're just continuing to have the fight. It's hard to see past the battle when you're right in the middle of it. So we're in the heart of it right now. We'll see what happens. But hopefully there'll be some federal movement on legislation and uh, we'll just see. We'll see what happens if the governor actually calls another session or waits till redistricting. We'll see what happens across many fronts. But All right now, what we can do is one day is the day we're living and fight the fight we have on the day we're doing it and then deal with it tomorrow, tomorrow. Well, listen, thank you so much for making time. I love to do this in person. I don't get to do it that often. So it's great to see you. Best to you and all your colleagues for causing this good trouble. As we like to talk about, you all understood that the contest we're in, the fight we're in, means that you have to use all the tools at your disposal. You all are using that. The lack of your presence means this stuff can't happen. And and thank you for you all taking so much time away, not only from your home, but your families and everything else. Where can our listeners find you online? Where can we find you on Twitter or Facebook? What's the best way to reach sure. you? Sure. Well, Twitter, it's Julie Johnson TX. And on Facebook, it's Julie Johnson for Texas. And, you know, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity. I think these conversations are so important to be having in our country to wake up the spirit I just want to end with, you know, people have asked, what's going on? How's it going for you? I said, well, the people that loved us before love us hard right now. Right. <laughs> the people that hated us before are hating us hard right now. But what I have found that's inspiring, that's hopeful, is that there's been a sleeping giant of voters who haven't felt heard, valued. I feel like they're waking up a bit. We're igniting in them a spirit of is my government trying to take away a fundamental right of mine? Sure. Maybe I need to pay attention to this. And if we can ignite that and wake up some of those souls to be participating in their democracy, then that's awesome. Well, listen, amen to that. I think we'll leave it there. Everybody, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Until next time, thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, 
which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.